time for Kids Church. So all of you fifth grade and under, you are dismissed. Have a great time. And the rest of you, I want to welcome you all in. And if you're joining us online, thanks for joining us. And uh, real quick before we jump into the message today, I, I just want to tell you about what's coming up. We've got a lot of things. Um, it's hard to believe it, but December starts on Wednesday. And so some of you all are in full Christmas mode. How many of you have put Christmas trees up already? All right, a few of you are decent human beings and you didn't, you waited till after Thanksgiving, right? How many of you waited till after Thanksgiving to put your tree up? Okay, all right, all right, a few of you, good, good. You, you, all, are, you all are good people. That's, that's, how we, that's how we did it in my house growing up. We, the day after Thanksgiving was for always putting up the Christmas tree, and so, so that's just how I judge whether you're a good person or not. That's, that's, yeah. Hey, but there's a lot of things coming up in December. Uh, we've got next Sunday, as Bobby already mentioned, Christmas in the carols. Uh, or carols in the country. We're going to sing Christmas carols, but carols in the country, that's here with Gilead and the Methodist Church, and so we're hoping that you'll be here for that. Uh, bring your favorite cookie, and I think Al is taking care of some punch or something like that. There'll be some kind of refreshment, so, so be here for that. Uh, then next Sunday is also uh, the Ladies' Bazaar, not Bazaar Ladies, Ladies' Bazaar. That'll be downstairs in Bell Hall, um, and you all know they always have Lots of good things. Uh, men's prayer breakfast is also next Sunday, and so come early, and you can shop during that time. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, men, that's when all the fudge goes. And so also just throw it out there. If somebody makes peanut butter fudge and they want to buy a Christmas gift for their preacher, he likes peanut butter fudge. Just put that out there for you. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on. We're starting next Sunday a brand new sermon series called Hope for the Holidays because as joyful as we want Christmas to be, right, it can be, a, it can be a kind of a downtime for a lot of people. It's a reminder of people that aren't with us anymore, and, and so there's a hope that we need in, in Christmas. And so next Sunday, we're going to start a new series. We're going to talk about hope for, ho for the holidays. We're going to talk about the need, the promise, the, the announcement, and the plan. That's the four Sundays, the need, the promise, the plan, and the announcement. Not in that order, I don't think, but we'll talk about them next, uh, next week. Today we're wrapping up our series, True Riches, and over the last few weeks we've been talking about some paradigm shifts that, that we need to make as it relates to our attitudes about our finances. We, we've talked about moving from pride to gratitude, from coveting to contentment, from anxiety to trust, and today as we wrap up our series, we're going to talk about moving from indifference to love. A few years ago there was a book written called What Is Life Worth? It was written by a man named Ken Feinberg. It's uh, it was actually a book that was turned into a movie that was just called Worth. It's on Netflix if you, if you care to watch it. I watched it. I didn't read the book because I'm one of those people. I watched the movie. And uh, it's, it's really it's, it's a very interesting and intriguing uh, movie. It's based on a true story. It takes place right after 9-11. And here's what happened right after 9-11. Our government got very nervous very quickly. Not because they were afraid there was going to be another terrorist attack, but because they realized that thousands of lives had been lost, that airplanes had gone down, and they knew that if they didn't do something very soon and they didn't get a handle on this, that they could potentially have thousands of lawyers at their front steps and thousands of victims looking to be compensated. They knew that if they didn't, if they didn't get a handle on this very quickly, that the airline industry could potentially go bankrupt. More than that, they knew that if they didn't get a handle on this, that the entire nation might go bankrupt. And so the government be, began looking for something to do, and so they looked for a lawyer to come in and develop what they called the 9-11 Compensation Plan. And this lawyer happened to be Kenneth Feinberg. 
Feinberg had been a, t- a part of these type of dealings in, in previous uh, ex- times, but on a much, much smaller scale, never something the magnitude that he was dealing with at 9-11. But he became so moved by, by everything that had happened and by, by this plan that he decided he would do all of this work pro bono. He would donate all of his time for this project pro bono. And so for 33 months... 33 months he worked on this plan, not realizing what all would be entailed when he started and what all would would come into this. But right out of the gates, he he said this. He said he had to create a formula that was based on the economic value of the individual that was lost. In other words, did the, the families of the CEOs who worked on the top floors of the Twin Towers, did their families get as much money or more money than the the dishwasher who worked in the basement of the Twin Towers. He had to create a formula that would would come up with their economic value. And all of that, as he he was doing that, he said, from the very beginning, he didn't want to know any of the stories. He had to come up with a formula and and not be attached to any of the emotion uh, of the stories that people had to tell. Because think about this. This is an extremely emotional uh, period in, in, in in the history of our country. And so he said he couldn't be attached to any of the stories. He just had to come up with a formula. Everybody basically had to become a number to him so that he could create this formula and do what was fair for everybody. And they knew that in order to to avoid the nation going bankrupt, they would have to get about 80% of the families who had been impacted by 9-11 to sign on the dotted line to join this compensation plan. So Feinberg went after it, and like I said, he said he didn't want to be touched by the, the emotion of it all. He was working on the formula, and as you would know, stories start to come in. People are, are telling their stories to, to his office, and all of this stuff starts getting rolled out. And as it's getting rolled out, there's one particular individual named Charles Wolfe who had some real issues with this whole formula. Charles Wolfe, his wife died in the Twin Towers. In fact, she worked uh, um, on one of the upper floors, and... On Monday, the day before, on September the 10th, her boss told her that she needed to start coming into work at 9 o'clock. She normally came in at 8.30, and, and on Monday, September 10th, he said, from now on, I need you to be here by 8.30. And so the next day, she comes into work at 8.30, and the, tower, and the and towers are struck by planes. Charles Wolfe began to look at all, of the, all the things that Ken Feinberg was doing, and he realized that there was all sorts of holes in this plan. That, that, that it just didn't work for him. And so he created another website called Fix the Fund. It was fixthefund.com. It may, I don't even, I don't know if it's still a website, if, if the domain still exists, but you can Google it later. But it was Fix the Fund. And as the deadline was coming, Ken Feinberg was, was seeing that they didn't have 80% of the people sign up for, for their plan. In fact, they had very few. At one point, it was like 8% as they were about six months out from the deadline. It was like 8% had only signed up for this fund. Meanwhile, Charles Wolfe, on his website, Fix the Fund, has literally thousands of people checking his website every day. They're following him, and they're following his story. And so eventually there's an encounter between Feinberg and Wolfe. Feinberg invites Wolfe to come in and meet with him because his office sees all of these people are paying attention to Wolfe to to fix the fund and not to this 9-11 compensation plan. And the reality was that this encounter was, was... Part of frustration for, for Wolf wasn't so much the issue of the fund, but more of the issue of the families and the person that was lost. And so he meets with Feinberg, and in the midst of, of this moment, there was finally an understanding that, hey, we don't care about your formula. 
We don't care about any of the X's and, and Y's and, and axes and all of these things that you have, you've developed. We don't care about any of that. What we care about are these people that have been lost. We care about the fam- families. We want you to care about the families. And there were all just sorts of emotions tied to it. The emotion of, of sudden tragic loss, of, of wondering how am I going to go on without this person? How am I going to raise these kids by myself? And, and, and that doesn't include the financial piece about it. How are we going to make ends meet? And, and the emotions attached to the fear of, of realizing and, and from the sense of our nation's leaders that, that this could financially destroy not only the airline industry, but also just our, our entire nation. And it all centered. It all centered around the issue of the heart. Jesus is deeply concerned for what is attached to your heart. In fact, in Mark chapter 12, we see this passage of Scripture that's also recorded in Matthew and Luke. And, and this passage, it's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus is asked this question, what's the greatest commandment there is? And he goes back to this moment in Deuteronomy 6 and he says this. He says, the Lord our God is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. In other words, love Him with all of your spiritual, spiritual being. Love Him deep within your soul. Make sure your soul is always in a good place. Love Him with your mind. Love Him with your intellect. Get to know Him and spend time with Him. Love Him with all of your mind. Love Him with all of your strength. Certainly rely on Him for the strength that you need. But also love Him with all of your heart. Because at the heart, the heart encompasses our, our passions and, and our desires, our affections and our emotions. And the truth is, is that we all have our heartstrings pulled at some point or another. Right? There, there, are, there are certain images that when we see them, it kind of pulls on our heartstrings a little bit. Like this image. Does this image, like isn't that adorable? Like there should be a collective awe, like y'all didn't do that. Oh, wake up this morning, let's try it again. One, two, three. Uh, yeah, like that, isn't that adorable? It just pulls on our heartstrings. Or, or what about this one? See, the dog gets more than the baby. Uh, I, I get it. Uh, dog lovers, I, I knew this one would get you. Advertisers, they know what pulls on the heartstrings of people. Do you remember that Sarah McLaughlin uh, commercial for animal abuse? That every time that commercial came on with Sarah McLaughlin singing that sad song and all these pictures of just animals, of cats and dogs who were scared and, and frightened because they'd been abused. And they had a little number at the bottom of the screen that you could call and make a donation. I'm telling you, people, when that, that song came on and those pictures went by, people were getting up off the couch and, and dialing that number and giving their life savings away. So let me just ask a couple of questions this morning, because I want to talk about the emotions of, of it this morning. I want to talk about the emotions of our money. And look, I've, I've said unapologetically from the very beginning of this series that we were going to talk about our money, because our money is often a roadblock in our, in our path, in our faith to Jesus. So let me talk about our, our emotions to it. And, and remember this, I also said from the very beginning that I wasn't going to ask you for any money, Right? I've said that up front. In fact, I've said the only, the only thing I would say about it is I think Christians ought to give more money to the ministries of the church. I've said that consistently every week, but I've not asked you to give more money. So again, this morning, we're going to unapologetically talk about money. Let's just see how honest you feel like being this morning. You can just raise your hand. If you're watching at home, you can just raise your hand or hit the like button or give it a, give it a thumbs up or something. But anybody ever had stress over money? few of you. Anybody ever lose sleep over money? Anybody ever have buyer's remorse? Like the week after your honeymoon? I mean, don't, don't, don't answer that one. 
Yeah, there's, there's fear over money, right? There's, there's frustration and anger and anxiety and relational fallout over money. And remember, the question that we've been trying to answer throughout this series is, how are my finances shaping my heart? But maybe the better question that we should be asking is, what or who truly has my heart? If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, he's been out teaching it, and it says this. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran to him and fell on his knees before him. And the man says, good teacher, good teacher. This man who, who is doing this, we, we're going to find out some more about him here in a few moments, but he's just from this alone, we can probably tell that he's been following Jesus along with the rest of the crowds for, for quite a while. He, he knows Jesus is a rabbi, that's why he calls him teacher. And he sees a lot of goodness in Jesus that, that maybe he doesn't see in other people. And after all, isn't that what drew people to Jesus? It was that they saw something in Jesus that they couldn't see in anybody else. And so the man asked, he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, really, when you think about it, that, that's maybe the most important question that we could ever ask. And he says, What must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? It's, it's an eternity question. What do I need to do to make sure that I spend eternity in heaven and not in hell? And Jesus responds to the man, why do you call me good? Nobody, no one is good except Jesus alone. Probably not the response that the, this young man is looking for, is it? In fact, probably nobody expecting that response. He says, why are you calling me good? And, and the reason I think Jesus says this is because he wants to make sure that, that this guy who's asking an extremely important question, he wants to make sure that this guy realizes exactly who it is that he's bowing down in front of. Not because Jesus was arrogant and was like, okay, you know, I'm the creator of the universe, bow down before me. But because he is the creator of the universe, right? And because he is the Messiah, you've got to make sure that if you're going to ask this important of a question, you got to make sure that you know exactly who you're getting your answer from. And so Jesus starts to pull at the heartstrings a, a little bit. Pull at the heartstrings of this young man. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and your father. Teacher, he declared. Not good teacher. See, where that didn't, that didn't get him anywhere, did it? He says, teacher, he declared. All of these I have kept since I was a boy. And then I love this next line. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And at this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God? And then the conversation, it, it Goes on, it goes on about the fact that it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a, a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. But Jesus concludes the conversation by saying this, by saying that nothing is impossible with God. That basically everybody can get into the kingdom of God if they will simply follow Him. Now here's what I want you to understand about this dialogue that, that we've just read. Jesus is not saying that money is evil. Jesus is not condemning anyone for having financial resources. Jesus is not even saying that you should sell everything and then settle for a life of poverty. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is trying to help this rich young man see what he was attached to. To, to see what he had, had attached his righteousness to. That what he, had, he thought was everything to him was not going to be able to buy him into heaven. Or even actually provide fulfillment in this world. There were really several problems that were, were going on here in the, in the heart of this man first thing is this is his heart was attached to what he had achieved 
His heart had been attached to what he was achieved. He was a rich, young ruler. He certainly would have known and understood the law. He would have had in the context of of community a lot of respect. People would have looked at him and and had great respect for him. And yet at the same time, there's some issues. There's some emotions that he's dealing with in his life. Even though he had all of the money that he could ever need, he still has the sense that something is, is missing. He still has this feeling of, of insecurity, of being unsatisfied, of being uncertain. He felt insecure and unsatisfied and uncertain. Think about this. Think about this. Money is really an unreliable source for, for your security. I mean, if, if you don't have enough money, then you've got some insecurity, right? If you have too much, you wonder when the bottom's going to drop out and, and then what am I going to do? And so you still have insecurity. So either way, your, your, your finances has your focus. You know, I've run into people, and you as well, who, who they just don't have very much. And they're just wondering, how am I going to get by? How am I going to make ends meet this month? And, and maybe even some of you, you're dealing with all sorts of challenges like student loans and mortgages and, and credit card debt. And you're just wondering, how am I going to make it to the end of the month? How am I going to make it to my next payday? But then I, I've talked to others, and, and we've talked about this a few weeks ago, who are just on that pursuit of more, that pursuit to get more. People who who play in the market every day, and one day it's a good day, and the next day it's a bad day. And and then there's just this sense of insecurity that takes a hold in their lives. And and whether you don't have enough or you have plenty, your finances has your focus. Unsatisfied. Think about this. This young man could have had anything that he wanted. He could have had anything that he wanted, and yet he knew there was something still lacking. In fact, Jesus says, there's one thing that you lack. There was something still lacking in his life. He was uncertain. He realized, wait a minute, have I been good enough to to make it into heaven? Have I been good enough to inherit eternal life? Listen, the world says that money makes us valuable. But for some, their their wealth is just a reminder of responsibility and opportunity. And and I want to say that this church, I think, does very well with that. Uh, Your sense of generosity and the the way that you manage your finances is, is excellent. But for others, their wealth makes their life more complicated. A few years ago, uh, Zappos CEO Tony Hesch, ended up, who ended up being worth about $840 million, and then he started working for Zappos, and he thought, I've already got enough money, I've got all, more than enough money, and so he took only a salary of $36,000. He's a CEO of a large company, and he's making $36,000. This young man, who had done very well in the corporate world, decides he's going to sell his mansion in, in uh, Los Angeles, and he bought an acre of land out in the country, and he put all of these airstreams on it. And he lived in an airstream, and he just created this trailer park uh, for all of these people to come in and live because he wanted that sense of community. But then something turned in Tony's life. And he sold his acre of land, and he sold his airstreams, and he bought a big place out in Utah. And he would actually start paying for people to come and live around him and, and paying people to come to these parties that he would have and, and these different events. And he was realizing that, hey, I've got it all, but there's, st- there's something that's still missing in my life. In fact, he made this statement. He said, I made a list of the happiest periods of my life, and I realized that none of them involved money. I realized that building stuff and being creative and inventive made me happy. Connecting with a friend or talking through the entire night until the sun rose made me happy. Trick-or-treating in middle school with a group of my closest friends made me happy. Eating a baked potato after a swim meet made me happy. Pickles made me happy. And if you're not aware, Tony Hesch died in a house fire tragically, and it was ruled accidental, but, but Tony had begun to consume drugs and, and lots and lots of alcohol, and, 
and he found himself just in a place of, of deep despair and loneliness. Insecure, unsatisfied, and uncertain. For the rich young ruler, he'd achieved it all. He'd done everything that he, he wanted to do, and yet he was still lacking something. So what Jesus does here is Jesus opens up the window to this man's heart. And he's going to try and show this man how to move his heart from, from indifference to love. And so Jesus also tags into his identity, realizing that this, that this young man, his identity was in who he was. And I, and I get that when you say it like that, it sounds like Captain Obvious, right? But, but when we read this story of the rich young ruler, the truth is, is this man had great moral wealth. He'd kept all the commandments. He, he'd, he, he'd done everything since he was a boy that he was supposed to do. But he also just had great wealth. And it was because of his great wealth that, that the religious of the day, they would look at him and they would believe that God was blessing him. Obviously, his parents had done something right. He had done something right. He was doing something right. There's not a sin issue in his life that needed to be dealt with. Eternal inheritance really shouldn't even be a question that's on his radar because this guy's life is so great and it would look from everybody looking in that God is pleased with this man, that God is blessing this man because of his wealth. And because of who he was, there was nothing that he could not have. And there was nothing that he could not do. And yet he stands before Jesus to ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Going back to the text, Jesus says, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your mother and your father. And he says, Teacher, I have, I have kept all of these since I was a boy. In other words, I, I've always acted in justice and kindness with, with my wealth. My parents taught me to, be, to do this when I was just a little guy. And the fact is that I've been a good boy. I have done everything the way that I, I'm supposed to have done. Does, not, does my goodness not count for anything? Right? He's, he's banking on his goodness, right? That he's done everything he's supposed to do. You know, I, I've done enough funerals and met with enough families over the years that when I'll meet with a family, especially if I don't know them very well personally, and, and you just try and begin to, to, to process uh, the individual and, and, you know, think, okay, what did they give their lives to? You start asking some questions. Hey, what, what was it that made this person tick? What, what really got them motivated? And then you move into kind of the spiritual conversation. And I'll say something like, hey, talk to me a little bit about what was going on in their life spiritually. And it's not uncommon to hear phrases like this. Like, he was such a good person. He was such a good person. Banking on that goodness. Or she did so much good for others. Just banking on that goodness. Or, or if I'm talking with someone who realizes that life is, is coming to an end for them, that, that they have less days than, than many others, I'll hear phrases like, you know, I've always done my best to do good in this world. I've always done my best to do good in this world. Banking on that goodness. And here's the problem with goodness. Is what's good? What's good? And how good is good enough? And here's what I find interesting about this conversation between this man and, and Jesus. Is that Jesus asked the man about commandments that related horizontally. Think about it. All, all the commandments that Jesus quotes to this man are all commandments that, that relate between him and other people. Right? Don't, don't murder, don't take another person's life, don't steal, don't take their stuff, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Every commandment that Jesus talks about is, is horizontal, it's, it's all that relates to other people. But this guy, he, he's not asking a, a horizontal question, he's asking a vertical, a vertical question. He's asking a question about God, how do I get to, to eternal life, how do I get to heaven? I want to know this way, right? And Jesus hits him this way. And he doesn't step back, and I don't know why the man doesn't step back and say, Hey, Rabbi, hey, I, I think you're missing, you're, you're missing what I'm talking about here. He, he doesn't do that. He says, you know, he just goes away sad. 
Jesus is trying to help this man understand that it's not about doing good that secures your eternity. It's about something that you receive. But listen, you cannot receive it if your hands are attached to another Savior. You cannot receive what God has to give if you're clutching everything else in your hands. If your hands are full, you cannot get what Jesus is offering you. you got to let it go, right? you got to put it down. And so the third thing was his, his security was found in what he possessed. Or you could even change that word security to Savior. That his Savior was found in what he possessed. The text says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said, one thing you like, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Listen, he doesn't tell the man to go sell everything he has and give it all to the poor. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say give it all to the poor. He says, sell everything that you have and move from indifference to love. Open up your eyes to, to, to those who have been less fortunate. Begin to touch the poor. Begin to care for someone outside of yourself. And at this, the man went away sad. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You know that word sad here? It's only used in one other spot in the New Testament. In fact, uh, Luke brings it out in Luke chapter 22. When Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and, he, and he's sweating drops of blood, it's the same word there, anguish, that, that's used for anguished. In other words, Jesus was grieved. He was anguished over this reality that at some point soon he was going to be disconnected from the Father. And this man, this rich young man, he goes away anguished because he had great wealth, because he realized that his Savior was found in his security, and, and that was what he possessed. And he couldn't give that up. He could not give up what he possessed because that's where his security and his Savior was. He says, you're asking me to give up my Savior. You're asking me to give up what I'm attached to. He, he was owned by what he was attached to. And, and that kept him from loving God with all of his heart. Kept him from loving God with all of his heart. Allowing God to change his heart. And Jesus is saying, listen, the solution to all of this, the solution is to let it go. you got to let it go. you got to put it down. you got to drop it. See, as a Christ follower, I think when it comes to the issue of finance and it comes to money, I think Christ followers live four ways. They live with a grateful heart because they realize everything comes from the Father. They live with a content heart because they, they've created margin that allows them to be generous uh, as God has been generous to them. They live with a trusting heart, pr trusting that God will provide every need that we might have. And they live with a loving heart because they understand what, what has actually been given to them. That the ultimate gift is not financial that it's what Jesus has given to me through the grace of God and his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. He looked at the man and he loved him. Don't forget that. I, I think all too often we read these stories that are familiar to us and we just gloss over them. He looked at the man and he loved him. Keep that in mind and listen to these words that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let me read that again. He says, For, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Did you catch what Paul's saying here? He's saying there is no formula. There is no formula. The, the work that Jesus did for you on the cross, giving up all that he had in heaven, coming down to, to, to take on the form of a servant, for your sake he became poor, that every life is worth the same, that there is no formula. And so the solution is to let go. Let go of whatever, fill in the blank. And maybe it's 
letting go of doing good things that cause you to think that you're earning it, that, that you're, you're being good enough, that that's what's going to get you into heaven. Maybe it's, maybe it's letting go of control or independence or shame, maybe fear or anger, or, or maybe it's your money. Maybe it's, hey, I've, I've just got to let go of my money. Maybe it's your career. What is it that's keeping you from letting go and receiving all that Christ has for you? I want you to just with me as we close to, to think about a couple of things. Think about what you're attached to. Think about what it is that you're attached to. I want, to, I want you to think about the emotions that you feel toward money, specifically your money. And think about all that you possess or maybe even that you desire to possess. Go sell everything that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus was not saying it was wrong to have nice things. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to have financial resources. He's not even saying it's wrong to be rich. And by the world's standards, we all are. He's saying keep it all in perspective. And remember that no matter how rich in the world's eyes you are, you are still poor without receiving the work that Christ did for you. Without Jesus, we are all still poor. Listen, you can die rich and end up eternally hopeless. And you can die poor and end up eternally rich. Why? Because he who is rich gave it all up and became poor so that you and I could become rich. How do I have eternal life? It's not based on the good things that I do. It's not based on the balance in my bank account. It's not based on the number of vacations that I might take in a year. It's not based on my credit score. It's not based on any of those things. It's based on receiving the grace that Christ extends to you because of the good work that He did on the cross for each and every one of us. And that, that should change our hearts. That should move us from indifference to love. Look, I didn't ask you for anything in this series, did I? I didn't ask you to give more money. I didn't ask you for anything, but I am going to ask you this. What are you doing with the good work that Christ did for you? What are you doing with the good work that Christ did for you? Because listen, again, there is no formula. There is no formula. We're all equal in God's eyes, and Christ gave all for me and for you. So what are you doing with the good work that Christ did for you? Because if you're just hoarding it, it's not doing you any good. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And I am so grateful that you have given up everything in your son so that we might have eternal life. So that we would go from being eternally poor to eternally rich because of the goodness of your son and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Father, help us in our hearts to move from indifference to love, to, to care about those who are less fortunate. Help us as it relates to our finances to, to just give control over to you in, in every aspect of our life, not just our finances, but, but as we've talked in this series specifically about our finances, help anything that is, is a hindrance, that's a roadblock in our journey to, with you. Father, we, we pray that we would get rid of all of those things. And so if it's money, Father, make us poor. If it's our careers, get us a new job. If it's, if it's fear and anxiety, Father, remind us day in and day out that we don't have anything to be afraid of because you are for us. And, those who are, and if you are for us, there, there can't be anything that's against us. Father, help us to to be grateful, 
to, to move from pride to gratitude, to move from coveting to contentment, to move from anxiety to trust, and from indifference to love. So that the world around us might see that we have a joy that is unmatched, not because of the things that we have, but because of who we have. Because we have your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.